It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, good afternoon. It is me, my myself, Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, who is on this radio station, WABC, every Sunday, 1 to 2 p.m., and also, until they fire me, in the New York Post every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I have been in this New York Post since the days of Abraham Lincoln. I just take Fridays off (laughs) to do my apologies. Okay, now, I'm about to bitch and moan. Summer. Summer brings the dreaded word houseguest. That's the worst. They rise in the West and set endlessly in the East. Forget that they're a pain in the attic. Forget the phrase, go West, young man. Nothing is worse than a houseguest except maybe a beetle. Temperature goes up, so goes the speed limit. You get aging Porsches, dented Lexuses, shiny BMWs, they all head out. The usual 90 minutes to Southampton swells to four hours, if there's no rain or accident. Cheapo bus riders hit the first stop. That's Bridgehampton's Candy Kitchen. That's where the lucky host gets them. And then comes the host's dreaded question, so how long you staying? Every street features an aging blonde in shorts, so short you can tell if she's had a colonoscopy. Plus, over the hill and dale, wives, trust me, some of them have squeezed nothing but a lemon in years. And there are the chunkies walking on the street, so chunky they make it a one-way. I don't like the Hamptons. There's always the pest who's schlepping a tennis racket, plus a golf bag, plus a bag of Scrabble. The allergist who can't eat when he's a house guest. He can't eat salad, fruits, chicken, veggies, or fish. But suggest a sirloin, and the answer is, yeah, thanks. Friday attracts the weekend boozer who wants to house guest, but he always wants additional olives in his martini because the doctor told me to eat more fruit. Beachfront owners have aged these days. Now it is too far for them to walk to the ocean. And their pool was last cleaned when Native Americans still owned the area. Prices have risen there, even if the clientele can't. Farm fresh veggies, ah, they now charge a hundred and a half per tomato. Plus the hills are alive with the sound of visitors chatting to Siri. I don't like going out there. Every July, an out-east homeowner gets stuck with some long-winded drone. I remember when I had one visitor who looked forward to dentist appointments. Why aren't these stupid extras out working? Doing something, saving our city, rescuing our country, stabilizing our economy, translating Biden, or widening the Hampton stupid-ass one-line highway, where to reach Amagansett, you need a passport. One lane is all they have. And forget mosquitoes. 
fundraisers, politicians who haven't yet been caught, arcane openings like some obscure artist who fashions lampshades from turtle behinds. And every restaurant has a live-in press person to hustle their one-of-a-kind, plant-based, mint-covered, Milanese crabgrass sour special. And how do I know all this? Because, my friends, I have lived the Hamptons' life. I've had the house, and I've had that special guest who can't drink coffee. He wants Sanka. Rubber pillow? Nah. He needs feather. Air conditioning? Forget it. He prefers open windows. Veal for dinner? Uh-uh, she's vegan. Wooden hangers? Forget it. Thin wire ones they want that won't pierce the Missoni shoulder. This is the kind of guest I always had. And if you have a bedroom on the second floor, the guest can't climb stairs. Bathroom has a shower. The guest prefers a tub. Newly divorcees cranky when the host can't include her three kids. Invited Saturday through Sunday, the couple planned for a week. If your house is near a church, the stayover is Buddhist. And conceited, I mean please, the occupant retouches her x-rays and your guest room has no full-length mirror. I have had it all. I have had them all. Mercifully, the end of the season comes time to unload them. But with luck, their car got a flat, and they're heading from Brooklyn, for Brooklyn. It's always Brooklyn. The question is, if New York City didn't have Brooklyn, where would the other end of the bridge rest? The Brits discovered the South Fork in 1640. Those who took that stupid, dumb, one-lane highway are still trying to reach Wainscott. Please, enough with the crowded, awful Hamptons. However, I am still available <laughs> for the weekend if you invite me. Now I will go to just a little dripping about a real drip. Kamala, be it known Kamala Harris, Kamala, Kamala, whatever her name is, she speaks nothing to nobody about nada. She only, pay attention, she only speaks constantly to her sister, Maya. She checks Maya for everything, every idea. Maya, a lawyer, a former Hillary advisor, a promoter of people of color, was her sister's campaign chairperson. How do I know this? I know this. Kamala makes no move without consulting her and definitely should ask her how to work Joe Barfton's mouth or even her own. Maya Harris, her sister, is the only one she trusts and desperately wanting the VP to wriggle into the White House this sister told her flat out she must, must step up fundraising or she can not do it. 
The husband makes no decisions. It's this lawyer sister in California who makes all the decisions. Every staffer first checks things with her. Eyes are on Maya to decide on the run or walk for the White House. Listen, JFK had Bobby, Kamala has Maya. This sister was on the campaign trail, and since the vice president that we have is never busy, she calls her shadow vice president daily. So be aware, my information slides straight out of D.C. Okay, now just two seconds on life changes. Ex-Senator Al Franken, who abruptly left governing, he's now back on the road doing stand-up. The guy's even rescreening his old 2006 document, Al Franken, God Spoke. The thing's 90 minutes, longer than he sat in the Senate. And the Queen's quiet son, HRH Prince Edward, in case you didn't know, and I'm now about to tell you, once bought the Mrs. Sophie a $3,000 shotgun. Okay? And once playing a man in the film Shakespeare in Love, Gwyneth Paltrow says, quote, the beanbag codpiece made sitting and walking difficult, but guys in the cast were always nice to me, always. They told me dirty jokes. When I dressed as a lady, they became more precious and scurried away. Okay, now a quickie station break. And then I am back with Clive Davis, and there's four pages on him in the June 6th People magazine. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, now my first guest is Clive Davis. He's on the cover of People magazine. The music mogul genius with the magical touch who has made, discovered, created the most famous one-namers of our generation. Whitney, Aretha, Manilow, Dion, Alicia, Springsteen, Joplin, Simon and Garfunkel, and two-namer, Taylor Swift. Me, not. But I am now about to introduce my friend, Clive Davis, who is also my neighbor. So, Clive Davis, Clive Davis, you're gorgeous on the cover of People magazine. You have more makeup on than Jennifer Lopez. How did they do it? (laughs) Um... I didn't uh, sit for People magazine. Uh, I was surprised that they did this whole photo spread from different parts of my life um, where they unexpectedly this past week um, did four pages on my life. So I really did not sit for any uh, photo. Oh, honey, they could do a 100 pages on your life. I would like to know, is it too late for people like me who used to love a Bing Crosby or a Frank Sinatra or normal type songs? Is it too late for us? We'll never have that again? Well, the songs are different. You know that decades change music. And um, will we ever have Cole Porter again or Rodgers and Hammerstein or... 
uh, you know, Rogers and Hart. Uh, the, um, the music does change, and currently, um, it is hip hop that's dominating. But probably the biggest artists, notwithstanding the strength of artists like Drake or uh, Kendrick Lamar, is Taylor Swift. Um, so that she uh, has quite creatively and quite brilliantly gone from a country uh, artist uh, to a pop artist. So it really is country and pop um, so that um, that music is commercially dominant. Now, uh, there is still some what we call adult contemporary, which is what you're talking about with Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby, but yeah, I'm afraid they were that pretty good in my time. They were wonderful. They're all time. Probably the best male uh, vocalist of all time. Uh, creatively with Frank Sinatra. Listen, you just had a birthday party, very small little birthday party. Maybe 900 people came. Did they all wear masks at your party? They all had to be uh, vaccinated. They all show, had to show their uh, three or four shots of vaccination. They were uh, the most everybody at cocktails where there was a close proximity um, uh, to each other uh, definitely did wear masks. But when they entered the uh, dinner ballroom um, over there at Casa. Uh, uh, Cipriani, the new place, uh, they sat at dinner tables um, without masks. Honey, did you as a kid ever think that you would become this famous, I mean, a world famous at what you do? Nobody does what you do. What did you think? What, did, what were you going to be? No, it, it, Cynthia never entered my mind. Uh, I lost my parents when I was 18, within a year of each other. I had $4,000 to my name after my both parents were no longer here. I had to depend on the beneficence of others, so I did get college scholarships to NYU. And the way that I would hope to rise above the working class status of uh, my parents uh, would be through law. And in those years, if you were um, a kid, Jewish kid from Brooklyn, uh, you either had to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I never liked the sight of blood, so I became a lawyer, okay? okay. Uh, and it was okay. pure luck that got me uh, three years out of law school into the Rosenman Law Firm uh, that represented CBS and Columbia Records was a division of CBS. And three years out of law school, I was offered the job of chief counsel to Columbia Records. That is how I got into music. Oh, my. Okay. Okay. Now that you just got into music, where are the five or maybe more? Where are the five Grammys? Where have you got them? Uh, yeah. Um, I do have uh, the five Grammys currently at my office at Sony. I am the chief creative officer of Sony. So my Grammys are on a shelf, 
and they are uh, at Sony. But very nicely, I don't know if you read, but NYU has established in the last two months a gallery museum uh, in my honor. And it's over two floors going through my whole life story. So there, if you go to J Street in Brooklyn at Tisch, you'll find uh, every TV interview or uh, music from artists uh, right from the beginning to current. And uh, it's a wonderful thing that they've done, and my Grammys will be there uh, in about a week. Oh, for God's sake, you're going to end up being looking like a mausoleum. I mean, really. You've got something <laughs> everywhere. What I want to know is, do you have any mementos or keepsakes from Whitney Houston? Well, of course I do. I mean, uh, I mean apart from the... You know, incredible number of photos you've seen uh, in this issue of people, uh, a few of them. Uh, But from the very beginning in 1983, at 19, when I signed Whitney, uh, through her passing, um, you know, uh, obviously my life totally interacted professionally and hers with mine. I not only signed her, but uh, I would come to her with each album uh, with 18 songs. And she and I would sit down to narrow it down to 10, 11, or 12. And even though we came from totally different backgrounds, our ears were so in sync with each other. Uh, People don't know. I'm right now co-producing the biopic on Whitney. And people have no idea how music was her passion, how up-to-date she was, how she knew every record, no matter what the genre was, so that I didn't just sign Whitney, but I was the chief, the only collaborator, except for the Bodyguard movie um, and the Waiting to Exhale movie. Who's going to play Whitney in the movie? In your movie, who's going to play Whitney? An unknown British actress named Naomi Aki, Uh, The filming has just completed, uh, and uh, I'm sure a favorite actor of yours plays me, uh, and that is Stanley Tucci will be playing me in the film. (laughs) With lots of makeup, honey. Okay, Did (laughs) did you ever miss out on anybody? I did. I, um, when you say missed out, I wasn't. If I use the word miss out, competitively, I was outbid by Electra for Harry Chapin. But if you asked whom I might have passed on, I will uh, admit to two artists. I don't know how much time we have for this. But the one artist, I didn't hear, nor did anybody really, to my knowledge, see that Meatloaf would erupt with Bad Out of Hell. Meatloaf, Meatloaf, He was here for lunch one day. I I served him meatloaf. I actually, because I'm stupid, I actually gave him meatloaf. What was so great about (laughs) meatloaf, if if you don't mind my asking? And even if you mind my asking, what was so great about him? Well, I'm saying that I did not sign him because he was very (laughs) unlikely, and the songs that Jim Steinman wrote were very theatrical and uh, didn't sound contemporary. It's not that he had 
10 albums over 50 years the way that Santana has or Barry Manilow or Whitney or Streisand. No, but I, along with all of my colleagues uh, and other labels, did not see Meatloaf as an enduring artist. So that's the one artist. There is a story regarding the second artist, if you have time for it. His name is the great John Mellencamp, uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. So um, if we have time, just tell me right now, do we have time? I have no idea, but keep going and keep going. Okay. And um, I would say it was about 10 or 15 years ago. I was at a dinner the night before Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone magazine, the founder, was being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we were having drinks uh, at Elaine's, that great restaurant, where an announcement came over the microphone, wherever you're standing, sit down for dinner. And I sat down, and this was a fabulous table of Bruce Springsteen, John Mellencamp, Jackson Brown and Don Henley. And they turned to me because I had auditioned both Springsteen, whom I did sign. And I said to John Mellencamp, I said, I've got to tell you, John, in every interview, when you talk about a lasting career, a long lasting, which was not Meatloaf's uh, fate, but you, you are the great, one of the great rock and rollers of all time. And I, when I auditioned you, I thought you were too close to the guy sitting on your right between us and that Bruce Springsteen. And he <laughs> said to me, which is a story, Clive, I've got to tell you so that your mind could forever rest in peace. Before I auditioned for you, I was in a cover band playing Las Vegas. And David Bowie's manager saw me in the band and came over to me and said, look, if you leave that band and start trying to write, I will represent you as a solo artist. And I will arrange for auditions before the most powerful music man and he said that's what happened and i'm writing i began writing i try to find my voice i was not the jack and diane i was not the writer i became but eight weeks after i began to try to write he calls me up and he said i've got you audition <laughs> auditioning for clive davis and who was my hero then? Who was the artist that most influenced me? It was Bruce Springsteen. So rest easy, there's no question. When you saw me, I was too close to the original of Bruce. I have found my own voice now. But when I auditioned for you, I was not the artist that I am today. <laughs> Life. The trouble with you is you're too boring. You're just too boring to talk to. You never have anything to say. I'm going to go read your magazine now, and you owe me dinner, okay? That's a deal. That's I, a love you. Thanks, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thanks, Clive. Thank you, sweetheart. Okay, God. Okay. Take now. care. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. 
Hi, darling. How are you? Good. Wait a second. Whatever it is, I hung up on them. So no, I'm here. Don't, don't worry about an intro. I will do the intro for next week. We're going to be on for next week, but I'm just okay. pre, pre-taping it now. So we'll go right into the interview. Okay. You got it. You got okay. it. So, Geraldo, my friend whom I love dearly, do you remember your first gig ever when you started? Yes, of course. I had been the lawyer for the Young Lords, which was an activist Puerto Rican group uh, working in East Harlem. They were, you know, campaigning for lead paint uh, poisoning testing and the free breakfast programs uh, in East Harlem. It was a very exciting time. And Gloria Rojas, who was uh, the only Puerto Rican on television in the news business in New York, 1970 it was. Uh, she carried a message to me from a guy named Al Primo at Channel 7 Eyewitness News who said he'd seen me in news clips representing the Young Lords and he wanted to know if I'd be interested in becoming an on-air journalist. So, Cindy, I was discovered like uh, like the old days. He just said, uh, come on, kid, I want to make you a star. I remember Al Primo. I worked for him. I remember that. So were you very excited? Were you nervous? What was it like, your first shot? Well, you know, I had gotten Kent State had happened, the massacre of the students uh, in Ohio, uh, uh, the uh, anti-war movement, the civil rights movement were becoming violent. My clients were getting arrested uh, a lot. It was kind of chronic and uh, kind of distressing. Plus, I wasn't getting paid any money for it. I was getting $250 <laughs> a week. Primo yeah. offered me three hundred. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. I said, oh, what, is, what, what do I have to do for that? <laughs> okay. How many newspapers do you read daily? I read the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the New York Post, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Why the Cleveland Plain Dealer? Because I'm here right now. Uh, you know, we have a home here in Shaker Heights, outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, my wife is from here, and I'd like to know what's going on locally when we're here. Okay, okay. What would you do if you're in Cleveland? I mean, that's something else. But what would you do to fix New York? You always have an answer for everything. What? What should we do? I'm in New York every week, and I, I think that one thing that is absolutely crucial, and I think that Eric Adams, the mayor, and I see eye to eye on this. Uh, The subways have to be safe. Without the subways, New York is going to be just a collection of small towns uh, disconnected from each other. Uh, And you you need – if you don't have confidence, you need confidence. That's the arteries and the veins, the bloodstream of the city is the subways. You've got to be able to go from the Bronx to your job downtown Manhattan. You've got to be able to go from Brooklyn. I have two kids living in Brooklyn, into Manhattan or wherever it is. You've got to be able to have flexibility. Otherwise, it's not a great city. But with the subways, it is a great city. So uh, Eric Adams, the police department, and the, you know, the people, the citizens of New York have to work together to get the subways where people are confident, where you can take them late at night like I did growing up, uh, you know, uh, where you fall asleep and you're not afraid that someone's going to mug you or shoot you or, uh, you know, uh, molest you. It's uh, uh, the subways have to be safe. I remember the old days with Curtis Lewa and the Guardian Angels. I yeah. think I was the first one to put Curtis on TV. 
that that was because the subways were so dangerous. We had uh, the the guardian angels suddenly appeared, and they they made people feel safer. Now everybody has to be a guardian angel, Cindy. Okay, I'm not a fan of this mayor, actually. That's something else. There are other things about New York. I have a friend, and I'm not going to say where she was walking. She was walking at 6 o'clock with a husband the other night, and two people were following her. She felt them following her, and she drunk, they, they dropped into a store that was open. And one of the guys who was following her said, Okay. We'll catch you the next time. This had nothing to do with the subway. This city is in problem everywhere. I agree that 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 is very, very troubling, that scenario. People have to feel safe. Uh, You know, uh, remember, though, in fairness, Cindy, and I know you've got problems with Mayor Adams, but in 1990, there were 2,300 murders in New York. You know, last year there were fewer than 400, so it's a lot better than it was during the, uh, you know, the uh, the seven. Remember Abe Beam when he was the mayor? How how tough the city. Uh, you know, even John Lindsay before him, and it wasn't until Ed Koch came in it started to turn around. Uh, we can do it. We can do the fight. We can. New York is very resilient. But what you describe, people need confidence in their skins. People need to feel safe. If people don't feel safe then, you know, the, the life shrinks. Uh, you know, if the kid can't go to the corner store uh, by his or herself, uh, you know, maybe I'm being naive, but I remember bicycles. I remember, uh, you know, when the city was free enough and open enough uh, that, that people could feel confident that they weren't going to be mugged or raped or, or stuck up. What happened to your friend is deplorable. But you know what I, I think we need? We need... New York to man up again. We need the city to have a sense of more collective responsibility for each other. Uh, when I was growing up, if a, if a guy pushed a girl or, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, someone pushed an old person, or uh, th- then somebody would come to their rescue. Everybody was in it together. I don't have a sense that everybody's in it together uh, much anymore. And I think I would like Mayor Adams to rally people. He's not rallying anything but his tailor. So all I have to know is that I have spoken to the last five, the last five police commissioners. I have spoken to one after another. We had it good during the Rudy days. We had it good during a lot of days. We had it good. And it's awful now. It's awful now. And it's because we have some little Boy Scout who's running to California to have dinner with Paris Hilton because he says that's good for New York. If he wants to know what's good for New York, let him go to Bed-Stuy. Let him go to Harlem. What are you telling me how good this guy is? And why am I fighting with you? You're my friend. I know. I love you, too. Uh, but he, uh, Adam said something that I've been trying to say. I say it over and over until I'm blue in the face. The inner city violence, ghetto, the ghetto civil war, uh, the black-on-black crime, the, uh, uh, the, it is the civil rights issue of our time. I talked about when I was with yes, the young lord yes, 50 yes, years ago. Yes. Now the civil rights issue of our time is to keep uh, these young people from killing each other and having that violence spread like a cancer, uh, where everybody is affected, uh, it's uh, it's terrible. I think that the George Floyd riots, 
uh, in 2020 were a real eye-opener. And I think they set the city back decades, uh, generations even, when when kids could go to stores on Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue, just, you know, smash the windows in, uh, you know, uh, do all kinds of obscenities and without any fear or consequence of punishment or, uh, you know, uh, of them having to pay a penalty for that. I, I think that that was really a very stunning moment. I mean, de Blasio was an absolutely incompetent mayor. I've known Eric Adams since when he was a cop, uh, you know, for a very long time. Uh, and I, I'm, I, I agree that he has a flamboyance about really? it. Really? Isn't that we, cute? Yeah. Really? A flamboyance? A flamboyance? He only wants to go to parties. He only wants to be on television. He only wants to go to his tailor. He only wants to wear comic suits. He hasn't done anything. And I love you. I don't know why I'm picking on you if you love this idiot, but that's up to you. How about how, how about what well, we've got a fool in City Hall and we got someone who drools in Washington? What do you want to do about fixing America? I think that President Biden is in a tough spot. Uh, you know, I was on with Sean Hannity last night and uh, Hannity said he's old and decrepit. And I said, Sean, what would your mother say if she heard you talking about it? the president of the United States that way. And yeah, but his laughed, mother wouldn't be president of the United States. We, we laughed about it. The, the fact is that Biden has made some, some real mistakes, but I think the worst mistake uh, is one that's easily solvable. It's energy. He needs to have energy. Trump, for all his flaws, had energy. You have to have a sense that there's a, there's a working person there, a, an engine uh, uh, that's uh, you know trying to get something done. Uh, Biden doesn't have that uh, that kind of. You, you feel he's going to fall asleep or you know go to the beach in Delaware and not. You, you want him to be more of a of a of a hustler. You know he's only eight months older than I am. It's not like he's a, you know a ancient mariner, uh, but he seems to be deflated, and I worry. Uh, you know, that he he doesn't seem to have the grasp. Uh, you know, he's, he doesn't have the strength to wrap his arms around the problems. Oh, and please. So he passed away there. about six months ago. Let me go on. <laughs> so far, I love you dearly, You're but I can't so cool. agree with anything. Now let's go to things you we can agree on. Okay. What do you use on your mustache to make it look like this? It's so gorgeous. I don't, I, I don't. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. I don't <laughs> use much. I don't use much. I use uh, there's, uh, there's sometimes I use mustache wax when I'm in black tie and I want it to look natty. But, you know, I've always had uh, my mustache has always been kind of the same color as my pubic hairs. So oh, I can't. How do I check that? <laughs> I, I don't know how to find out if you're telling me the truth or not. Give me a way to do that. <laughs> that well, the next time you see me, I'll just. I'll whip something out. We'll, we'll decide. Okay. So I have very heavy other questions. You're married 800 times. Are you going to do it anymore? No, I've been happily married 20 years now. I've been faithful to my wife. That was always the, uh, you know, the sore spot. That was always where I fell, uh, you know, onto the onto the rocks was uh, my inability to be straight straight and narrow. I am now, and I, it's, I'm very, very happy for it. I, I Does think that mean my... you cannot do anything more? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm, I'm <laughs> quite the contrary. I, I, that's the one area in, and my mustache where I continue to flourish. But I just keep it, I, I keep it home. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Have you ever goofed up on TV? Have you ever done something you well, were sorry for? I Famously, I opened Al Capone's Empty Vault to the largest audience in the history of syndicated television. Oh, I remember uh, you that. You know, uh, it was a great humiliation, but uh, it had a happy ending because I had been, at the time I took the gig, the most famous unemployed person in America. Uh, after I put it on, even though the vault was empty, I had 22 job offers. So that led <laughs> to the talk show and that led to prosperity and uh, the elongation of my career. So you never have gotten embarrassed or something? You've always been able to overcome something that goes wrong? Oh, no. I, I certainly embarrass myself. Some of the things I've said I wish I could take back. Uh, you know, but nothing has been – I've never mortally wounded myself, and I've never really – I'm sorry that I wrote my book in 1990 or so uh, exposing myself because I mentioned too many people I had been with and – I, in exposing myself, I exposed them as well, and I've always felt in the, uh, what is it now, 30 years since then, 32 years since then, I've, uh, I, I, I look back, at, that is my biggest regret in my professional life, that I, that I went there, that I told tales out of school, and I embarrassed myself when I look back on it now, Cindy. You know, we love you. I mean, Geraldo, you're a part of our universe. I love you madly. How do you handle if someone attacks you? I don't mean necessarily physically, but even if they attack you on the air or something, do you not curdle or or, or get nervous? No, I'm a I'm a street fighter. Yeah, I've had more on-camera fights than people in the professional boxing field. You know, I've I've been very I've always been a very physical person. Now, of course, I'm humbled by uh, by old age, but still I. I am a. If you ever see me with the, this guy Dan Bongino on yeah uh, yeah on yeah Hannity show or Greg Gutfeld on the Five uh, yeah you know I I they give me their best shots and I give them a shot right back. I the thing you can't do is to you know have a stiff upper lip and take take a blow without responding to it. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back. Uh, you hit me hard, I'm going to hit you harder. That's always been my rule. Geraldo, I love you. Ed. Absolutely. I have loved you for years and years, oh, and I here. only hope that you can spend many a happy evening with our mayor. That's all. That's what I wish you. <laughs> okay. Happiness with our mayor in City Hall. Okay? Thank you, Cindy. Thank I love you. you. Thanks, I baby. I appreciate it. I love you. Bye. Bye-bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm into history. Have you heard the name Bong Bong? That is not somebody on a tambourine. That's the new president of the Philippines. His given name, Ferdinand Marcos. The father was the late president of the Philippines by the name... Ferdinand Marcos. The mother, who has had her own headlines, is Imelda Marcos, my longtime forever friend. Back before What's-His-Name invented light bulbs, she and I met. The Shah of Iran had invited personal friends to celebrate His Majesty's ancient 2,000-year-old city, Persepolis. They were nice guests, like Princess Grace, Haile Selassie, Spiro Agnew, 
Imelda and me. Now this week, Imelda in Manila, me in New York, traded phone calls. Years come, tragedies go, but friendships of half a century go on. Go back to a long time ago when a lingerie company named Kaiser Roth owned Miss Universe, the pageant. I was then assistant to the president before I was on the New York Post. I brought celebrity judges. And in 1974, I arranged to televise the Miss Universe pageant worldwide from Manila. It was the first time ever the pageant had ever been outside the USA. I did it because Imelda was my friend. The estimated audience was 500,000. Imelda built us a special theater. Then came fearful hurricane warnings. Our crew alone numbered hundreds. Calmly, the First Lady sent up her Air Force to seed the clouds. What that meant, who knew? What it did, I know. Black clouds moved off the island of Luzon. The day cleared. The show televised. Next day, that hurricane socked us in for three days. I know because I was there. The country is 12 hours ahead of us. On one trip there, and I am not proud of this, but I made so many trips there, it's a long schlep. On one trip there, President Marcos held a huge gala in my honor. It was gowns, jewels, music, magic, photographers, TV, flashbulbs. And the major photo? Me, fast asleep on the president's shoulder. I, what can I do? I can't take it back. It's a long 20-hour flight. So yes, for sure, I know the mom of the new president of the Philippines. On the phone this week, we remembered her 1980s New York trial. Life then was her east side townhouse and General Douglas MacArthur's Waldorf suite where one day her friend Doris Duke, then USA's richest female, brought two lawyers plus Imelda's needed millions for bail so she wouldn't go to jail. There was some problem about her arithmetic, something like hundreds of millions, nobody knew where they went. Nobody was to know Doris Duke came. Nobody was to know she brought millions. Nobody was to know she also brought lawyers. Me, unfortunately, I was already there. So Imelda's people locked me into a john where I could hear everything and later report all. So, June 30th, her only son became her nation's president. She says, of age when his father was alive, he always wanted to be a politician. School was in England. He spent 20 years studying there. And then he ran in our province. He became governor, senator, and now, with my wishes and prayers, president. I will stand there 
wearing my best Filipino dress of choice. I still keep my old clothes, but my daughter is making a special gown for me. Amelda also said to me on the phone yesterday, don't think I don't know or remember what difficulty is. I remember those days when I faced jail in a New York courtroom and was all by myself, alone, fighting. Returning subsequently to Manila, there were cases against me. They would not let me leave the country. I thought, as well you know, that I would never, ever come back. The government was against me. I faced it all alone with people praying to help me. I was in such a sad state. Imelda and I together relived her standing to face a New York judge in a cold courtroom. We remembered her collapsing and being rushed to a hospital. We recalled a priest conducting mass in her living room. We reviewed her walking St. Patrick's Cathedral Isle on her knees. Imelda said to me on the phone this week, I will never forget you were my only friend. Now she says, I'm okay. I live alone. It's a large apartment. Many care for me. My children live nearby. And July 3... I will be 93, and now I will come to an end, and I will ask you please to think about me again next Sunday at 1 o'clock on WABC. Thanks. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.